there, there, there is there is this thing do you realize what is what is what is there is this thing do you realize consciousness is affected there, there is this there is this thing on there is this thing going on do you realize our consciousness is affected there is this thing going on what is called the news are brought to you live Hello and welcome to Unfit to Print. I'm your host, Julia Ujel, and it is November 14th. Sort of a cold and dreary Tuesday here at CKUT. This week on the show, I speak to journalists at some of the country's most exciting indigenous news projects. We chat about their work and discuss how to bring reconciliation into our journalism. First on the show, we have Jessica Deer and Daniel J. Rowe from The Eastern Door, a local newspaper from Ganawage. These two reporters are also leading a Concordia workshop this Friday, entitled Reporting on and with Indigenous Communities, along with Ganawage radio journalist Paul Grafe. Next, we have Rosanna Deerchild, host of CBC's Unreserved, a radio show about Indigenous culture and conversation. We're also joined by Rick Harp, host of the Media Indigenous podcast. And finally, we have Wamish Hamilton, a reporter with Discourse Media. After that, we have coverage of Sunday's Grand Manif contre la haine et le racisme, and of last Wednesday's panel on opposing racial profiling and police violence, co-hosted by the Black Students Network and Media at McGill. Finally, we have a culture shock recap from Kira Shepard, Campus Outreach Board for Kewpirk McGill. Thanks so much, and stay tuned. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission report was published over two years ago, and yet almost all of its 94 calls to action have gone unanswered. Of these calls, numbers 84 to 86 directly concerned the third estate. 84 called for an increase in CBC funding to increase Indigenous hiring and programming. 85 called on APTN to continue to support reconciliation in its journalism. And 86 called upon Canadian journalism programs and media schools to require education for all students on the history of Indigenous peoples. So the goal is to give more space to Indigenous issues with writers and editors who are either well-versed in the subject matter or who are Indigenous themselves. But it's always good to talk to the folks themselves to see how well this approach is working and what needs to change. So today I have with me several journalists, the first two of which are Jessica Deer and Daniel J. Rowe from The Eastern Door, a weekly newspaper in Ganawage. This Friday they're leading a Concordia workshop on reporting on and with Indigenous communities. Jessica and Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, so could you tell us how the two of you started working there and how you guys got into journalism? Uh, I can start that. I started working at the Eastern Door. I did an internship here out of journalism school. I was in the diploma, um, the graduate diploma at Concordia University, and I did it over the summer. And then I did a lot of freelance work over the year with Eastern Door and uh, was hired full-time right after I graduated. 
Hi, I'm Jessica. So I'm from Ganawage. I started here uh, actually as a summer student when I was in Asia studying cinema, and I pretty much just never left. After two years of interning during the summer, I started, uh, I had the opportunity to freelance an opinion column, and then I ended up freelancing reporting, and now I'm a staff reporter. Great. So how do you feel you, you both say that you went to J school, you were students, and then very quickly you got involved with the Eastern Door. So what kind of fellowship or internship programs were available to you? Well, for me, being a, um, a student in Ganawage, there's the uh, Ganawage Post-Secondary Student Employment Program, and that's what I actually got through, you know, for my job. And I got other opportunities not just to work at the Eastern Door, but to work for other media in the community, and that was such a, a great experience. Um, it really, I think, opened up the door for opportunities in my own community. So I'm curious about those kinds of internships and what opportunities are available for Indigenous reporters to, to foster uh, new generations of Indigenous reporters. Well, I'm not Indigenous myself. However, I do know that there are a lot of internships across the board. We have internships here at the Eastern Door that we're always filling and we're always eager to encourage uh, writers to writers photographers or whatever to take part of um, I, I know other editors and other organizations that also have internships that are specifically for indigenous journalists and you'll notice it also with with applying for things there there will often be a section that you can check that is specifically for indigenous journalists I guess that relates to the workshop that the two of you are giving uh, this Friday at Concordia on reporting on and with Indigenous communities. So you, you've said that, yeah, one, one of you is uh, Indigenous, one of you is non-Indigenous, um, and you both work at this publication that serves a, an Indigenous community uh, predominantly. So I guess coming at it from two different perspectives, what do you feel like the responsibilities are, are sort of, and the challenges are, um, I would assume that, you know, there are different responsibilities and challenges coming at it from these different perspectives. Well, sort of. The challenges and responsibility of reporting is a general question, I would argue. When you go into a situation, the idea is to be reporting someone else's story and not your own from the first so we each have different strengths and personalities, and so that we're going to come up, come across it the same way. Um, for myself, I'm from the outside coming in. That is the challenge in that the developing networks is incredibly important. Uh, mistrust is going to be a little bit higher because people don't know don't know me at all before I started here, and there is a lot of mistrust based on the past and the way stories have been told in the past. And so that's a challenge to overcome. It's not impossible, or I wouldn't even argue that it's that difficult to overcome because if you're you're going into a story in anything, you can, if you go into it with respect and humility and you listen, you will be able to get, people will be very open to tell their stories as long as they know that you're you're listening to them. As a an as a as a journalist from this community, I feel like there's such a um, a huge responsibility to do those stories justice. Like Daniel said, there's a lot of mistrust, and I think it 
building relationships are so important, whether you're, you know, a non-Native reporter or even from this community. And that's something that, like, I've had challenges with, um, even being from here, where I got to, you know, build those networks. But I think I think it does help that I'm from the community and I'm, I guess have have some of that that history. I just add that it it also helps being not from the community. There's a definite advantage to that because with any small community, and this goes for uh, small towns anywhere, if you're not connected to anyone there, uh, people don't. They may not have prejudged conceptions of your opinions, your bias, or whatever, and they'll just kind of talk to you openly. Whereas if I were from here, there may be a family member or multiple family members that the person doesn't like or doesn't trust. And and that's another thing to overcome for those that are from here that I don't have to deal with. I'm also wondering about the specific the specific things that you guys are going to bring to Friday's workshop at Concordia, because you you've highlighted that it is very possible to do Indigenous reporting as a non-Indigenous person, and that there are just different, I guess, challenges and different aspects to to either case. So, well, the first thing I, with workshops like this, and when I'm talking with re- journalists, is to sort of get over a lot of the things you're bringing with you, your own personal baggage before you go into it. Um, You're talking to people regardless of where you're talking to them. And all of your politics and baggage, you really have to set aside to do the story. Um, I did a lot of work over the six years I've been here. I go to hockey games. I go to different events, cultural events political meetings, and I talk to people a lot, and just sometimes on the record, and a lot of the times I'm just chatting with them about their kids or their their lives or their work, and getting to know that type of thing has been incredibly invaluable. And that's, it's not hard, it just takes a little patience, and it takes an, an eagerness to just try and get to know people and to build a network, and I think that's kind of a the basis of all reporting is is having relationships and being able to tell people's story based on those relationships. And the trust factor is, is huge. And so when they know if I make a mistake or if one of us makes a mistake, they're going to be able to see me and they're going to be able to talk to me about it. And if I do something well also, they'll be able to see me and talk to me about that. That's, that's kind of huge because it, it helps with your job and it makes things a lot easier. It's pretty much, I have to agree, for me, like, the main message is about building that network and having patience to build that network, and that it may take a lot of work, because I think one of the biggest problems right now with the way Indigenous issues are covered is that the reporters kind of fly in when it's a a negative thing affecting our communities, Um, and that's certainly the case in Ganawage, and, you know, our community sees that. I think it, it, it really helps. With even just with community journalism, you know, when there's these different community events during the evenings, on weekends, and they see a familiar face at, at all of them, you know, it's, there's Daniel and Jessica again, <laughs> or, yeah, or just the Eastern Door, you know, whether it's something like a harvest fair or a, a local football game, like, covering those are really important, and I think it helps to build trust when, you know, something maybe major happens where they can feel that we're going to cover those stories in a respectful manner. 
I'll just give you an example of that. I don't know if you saw the news that there was a horrible car crash here a couple of weeks ago where a couple of young men died and uh, three young ladies were really hurt. And it was an awful, awful story. And while I was doing this story, I made a point of, of contacting as many of the family members as I could, both of the person who was the driver of the car and was is in a lot of trouble right now, obviously, and also as many of the victims as they could, just to let them know that the story was going to be printed and that if they had anything to say, feel free to contact me and I and in no way pressure them to do that. And I've done that a number of times because I have covered a number of crime, uh, either crimes, accidents, things involving people dying, and it's in a small community. It's it means a lot to reach out to those people that will be affected. For a lot of larger publications, it's, I suppose, financially difficult, though maybe less so now that they are sort of axing staff and relying on freelancers. But it's it's difficult to get coverage in a lot of different communities. So as you said, there's a lot of reporting that's sort of helicoptering in when something bad comes out and then leaving. How do you feel like larger publications and larger news outlets can team up with local journalists to better serve Indigenous communities? I think they do it. Um, I, we all, uh, Jessica, our editor, Steve Monson, and I all have connections with larger publications. And to help them, help them report, we definitely try our best, although at times there's this particular going thing where they'll contact us and get us to give them sources, basically, who do I talk to? Which, if it's a friend of mine, it's not a problem because, you know, you we like to help each other out. But um, I think with larger publications that come into to cover, I think that work is the same. It's just a little bit more sped up. I think if you're writing a story, you can easily spend five minutes chatting with someone before you go on the record or after you go on the record and just stay in contact. It's really easy to communicate with people um, now, especially with chatting and texting and, and such that it's not hard to, to keep a source, like just keep in touch with them. I, I know it's with the Montreal Consider, the CBC or CTV, the ones that come over here, or APTN even, they um, will come in for sort of big tragedy stories, but at times they'll come in for things that are, that are cultural, a powwow or something like that, which is always a very good way to, to keep in contact with the smaller, the smaller communities. Okay, thank you so much, Daniel and Jessica. We're having a, a few technical problems, so I'm going to have to let you go. But uh, thank you both. For those of you who are just tuning in, that was Daniel J. Rowe and Jessica Deer from The Eastern Door, which is a weekly newspaper that runs out of Ganawake.
So next on the program, we have Rosanna Deerchild, who is the host of CBC Indigenous, which is a radio show about Indigenous community, culture, and conversation. Uh, Welcome. Hi. Rosanna, thank you so much for coming on the show. You have had a very long career in journalism, and I was wondering if you could talk talk about being a very prominent Indigenous reporter and the opportunity to host a show like Unreserved. Unreserved is a now national radio show, as you said, that features Indigenous uh, community conversation and culture. Um, It has been, this will be the fourth year that it's on CBC, the third year that it's national. And uh, it came out of a need and a desire for Indigenous people to have space and have voice on our national broadcaster. And I was fortunate enough to be at a time in my career where my name came up. I don't know if they spun a wheel or put my name in a bingo ball roller, but nonetheless, I was uh, lucky enough to get that call to have the opportunity to try out hosting it. And um, they, the rest, they say, is, is uh, Indigenous history. So how do you feel like the reception has been over the past four years with the show? Our show hasn't been growing in popularity. Um, of course, at first we were just in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and across the north as a regional program. And then as interest in, in, in the show and the conversations and the people that we were, we were sharing radio space with grew, and the more that non-Indigenous Canadians heard the show, the more they wanted to hear it. So they made us national, and um, reaction has been steadily um, positive. We get a lot of emails and mail and, and comments on our social media about how much um, our show has changed perceptions and challenged people in terms of what they thought um, Indigenous people were and the history that we uh, shared. And interest is just, just keeps growing and growing. So when you guys are planning the shows, you talked about changing perceptions. Is that something that sort of just happens when you put that content out there and people actually have a more genuine experience of what Indigenous Canadians are producing and taking part in? Or is it Uh, an intentional decision by the production team? Um, Well, I think that it's it's a little bit of both. I mean, uh, there's not a lot of opportunity, regular opportunities for uh, non-Indigenous Canadians to hear our side of the story, as it were, or our perceptions and our experiences. I mean, that's sort of stuff that you have to go and and willingly and want want to find to look for. Um, so for them to be able to find that stuff and hear that stuff and and hear our stories on something like the CBC, a platform that's available for 
for for all people in our country is is amazing. So uh, many people just sort of find it on the dial and and are interested in listening to it. Other people listen to our podcast or go on our social media and our website to to check it out. But it's also an intentional thing. I mean, we we sit around in a room every week and we think about what kinds of stories do we want to tell this week? What kinds of what's going on out in the community? What are people talking about? What do people care about? And how can we bring something different or unique to the conversation that's outside of the news cycle, maybe, or outside of the usual coverage of some of these stories? And we, we look for the personal angle, the storytelling part of the of the news, or, you know, something that's going to reach people and make them see it from, from our perspective. So it's really important that we humanize it and, and make sure that everybody can relate to, to what we're saying in a way that truly educates educate people without preaching to them. Can you think of any stories in particular uh, where you have seen a really big response and you feel like, you know, there was something about that story, about the way it was told that really struck a chord with people? Um, well, recently we had, um, well, this year is Canada is celebrating its 150th um, birthday. So a, a lot of Canadians and, and organizations and groups and structures were celebrating Canada's 150. Well, of course, for Indigenous people, it's not necessarily a celebration because, you know, that's 150 years of colonization. It's 150 years of genocidal practices like uh, residential schools. That's 150 years of having to be oppressed and pushed aside. So for us, it's not necessarily a celebration. But And so we brought a lot of those kinds of stories to, like, not so much in a negative thumbing against Canada, but in a way that said, okay, well, yes, it's great that Canada is 150 years old, but what does that mean for Indigenous people? What do, what do, how do we look at it? It's not so much, it has to be an acknowledgement for sure, but what kinds of things are we doing to mark that that 150 years? And so we spoke to a lot of artists and activists and, and people that were pushing back and looking at it in a different way. And so as a result of that, we had a lot of non-Indigenous people um, writing us, you know, email or, or uh, coming up to me on the street even and telling me what they were doing to, to push back against this idea that it was all good news. There was the lady in Ontario who was reclaiming some of her land to Indigenous people there. Another person in uh, B.C. who was doing the same thing. So this idea of what non-Canadians or quote-unquote settlers uh, are doing or to question themselves in terms of how they they interact and how they react to this idea that Canada is this hodgepodge of happiness when in fact that, you know, there are things that need to be acknowledged and things that need to be repaired in terms of our relationship. And so um, that was a direct, something directly uh, changed the perception around um, this idea of celebration in 150. And so that concept of trying to take something that most Canadians wouldn't question and then show how it was sort of not the full story or problematic, um, that seems to be very much in line with what came out of the TRC. And hearing about your show, your show seems very much like a response to uh, Call 84 about putting more funding in the CBC and creating more national programming on Indigenous issues and also putting more Indigenous folks at higher and more visible positions within journalism in Canada. How have you watched the media landscape change as you've been doing the show? I mean, your show has obviously seen differences in listenership, but also, yeah. as we saw with 
the appropriation prize earlier this year, you know, mainstream media is not always on the same page. Well, the Truth and Reconciliation's calls to action um, came out uh, a few years after a show went to air, but uh, of course it was nice to to see, and it, and it was absolutely necessary for the TRC's call to action to to call upon the mainstream media to to change how they cover Indigenous story and to change how they they make space for for people. And, and you know, of course, we need to see more Indigenous people in those not just um, host roles and not just reporter roles or or uh, shooting roles, but we need to to have these people in management roles. We need to have them in the upper management roles, you know, we need to have them right up at the top level so that we can really, truly make space and make room um, for the for all voices that are in Canada. Um, and so, you know, in the time that I've I've been here or have been involved in, in Indigenous media and journalism, I've seen huge shifts in how how we are perceived and how the stories that we um, tell are, are treated. You know, more and more we're seeing ourselves tell those stories, and that's good news. Uh, more and more, we're seeing mainstream change the language of how they refer to us in, in their stories. And that's, you know, um, absolutely necessary, and, and that's progress. And so, um, you know, as we go further o- further on in in, uh, in time and in how media changes and uh, makes room, then we're going to see more and more Indigenous people taking on those roles, I feel. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so... I guess apart from listening to shows like Unreserved, uh, how can non-Indigenous Canadians uh, engage with these issues and support that next wave of Indigenous journalists um, who are being supported through calls to action from the TRC? Of course, I always uh, encourage people to read as much as you can. Go to powwows, engage with Indigenous people. Go find your, you know, local friendship center and see, you know, if if, if anything is going on there in terms of getting involved, or, or just simply being aware. You know, just simply having those conversations within your community, around your kitchen tables, at your office, challenging your own perception, asking yourself questions like, what territory am I in? Uh, who are the people that lived here before me? Do they still live here? What kinds of, you know, engagement can I get involved in without going in and taking over? Um, how can I be a good ally? Am I a good ally? What does that even mean? And um, really uh, trying to grow in terms of your knowledge base and in terms of how you, you um, react to and um, interact with indigeneity. Rosetta, thank you so much for uh, being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. So next on the show, we have Rick Harp, host of Media Indigena. 
Media Indigenous is a weekly podcast serving up discussions of Indigenous issues in Canada with a roundtable of guests. It's donor-supported on Patreon and available free online to listeners. Rick, thanks so much for joining me. Good to be here. So Media Indigenous started out as an online magazine, is that right? Yeah, it was a, a, a group of uh, about 10 of us and did our best to, to be as regular and, and consistent as possible. And then, uh, geez, about 88 weeks ago, <laughs> we uh, switched to, to a podcast format. The, the tagline of Media Indigenous, Interactive Indigenous Insights. So we kind of went from one medium to another in order to uh, continue to fulfill that mandate. Yeah, and so how did that switch happen? And uh, yeah, I guess why did you choose that format for your stories and what experience have you had with it? Um, well, I mean, I had to pay the bills. At, at one point, Media Indigenous was more a labor of love. And um, I think for a lot of the contributors, other things took priority. And so um, I ended up doing radio for CBC in Alberta for a while. And that really kind of rekindled in me uh, a love for the form. And so when my time was done there at, at CBC Edmonton, I saw that podcasts were really on the rise. And I was realizing that the barriers to entry were pretty much, you know, practically nil. And there had been a real kind of um, embrace of the form among many people. And I, I just thought it was a great fit. I loved doing audio and uh, I'd noticed there were roundtables for many different subjects and realms, but nothing that I wanted to hear for Indigenous current affairs. So that's the that's the quick and dirty version of that. And so, yeah, you've been able to get some really interesting guests on the show. Was that sort of because you had those connections from when it was a magazine? I think so. I mean, we had a presence. Uh, it, it wasn't, you know, it started off strong and then as time went on, I think it was less less productive uh, in terms of quantity. and uh, But, um, you know, I had also done some work at the Aboriginal People's Television Network, so there may have been some familiarity there. But, you know, as time went on, I guess the podcast itself had a reputation and people who had heard of the podcast were very happy to be on it. I guess tell us more about the podcast itself and the variety of issues you cover. Well, it's evolved over time. Uh, it used to be just me and one person talking about something that they were involved in or passionate about. And now it's in its current iteration, which has been in place for geez, it's for a while now, uh, it, it's, it's a roundtable. So it's me and two other people, and uh, we talk about issues of the day and, and hopefully add a layer of insight, a layer of analysis, a layer of context. So that people just aren't getting sort of the surface superficial sense of why something has you know been flaring up or why something is in the news these days. Really, you know, it's like the difference between weather and climate, right? And, and we're trying to be climatologists, if you were. And there's two sets of roundtables, actually. We have uh, Tate Walker and Kim Tallbear on one week. One is a communications professional. The other is a, a professor at the University of Alberta. And then we switch over to another week where we have Kenneth Williams, a professor of drama at the University of Alberta, and Brock Pitawanaquat, who's a professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Sudbury. And so this is in part just to make it manageable for their time. Uh, people aren't doing this for a, a lot of money. It, it's still a labor of love, but I'm trying to make it so that it's not completely without some form of remuneration. And so that's why we've 
gone to Patreon to, to ask our listeners to support the creation of the podcast. As much as, you know, the, the costs and barriers to entry have gone down, it's still time. It's still an investment of, of intellectual labor that we're spending time away from other things in order to do this show. So we're hoping that, you know, the, the listeners consider it a fair trade. So about that point on the difference between uh, weather and climate in journalism, I was listening the other day to an episode of your show from earlier in the year where you talked about the TRC calls to action and right. sort of reflected on what you were doing with Media Indigena and how that fit into sort of reconciling journalism. And I was wondering if you could just talk about sort of that climatological <laughs> perspective and how you've seen the media landscape change, if you've seen it change if there are more perspectives like that on Indigenous issues? Well, as you may recall from that particular program, I was talking to a working journalist and I was talking to a professor, an Indigenous professor, and I was very concerned to you know, make front and center the fact that media is produced for an audience. Media just doesn't occur in a vacuum, just like facts don't occur in a vacuum. Who produces the facts and who they're produced for are, to my mind, very important considerations. Stories just don't naturally occur. They occur within a context, and sometimes there are conscious and unconscious motivations for creating a story, which sounds probably kind of disarming for some folks, or at least unsettling, because they're like, I just, I just want to be entertained. I just want to be distracted. I just want to, you know. Uh, but when it comes to news, the theory is it's supposed to be objective. It's supposed to be neutral. They're just facts. You know, it's just like falling off a log. There's not supposed to be any torque. There's not supposed to be any spin. But I think when you factor in who is the news produced for in a mainstream institution, those calls to action were directed at mainstream media outlets. You're always considering who's listening, where their starting point is. And I think a major challenge for mainstream media serving a mainstream audience, which is majority non-Indigenous, is, you know, anytime you introduce a radically new or unconventional concept, you really have to set the stage. And, and the idea that Indigenous people should have exclusive control over their lands and resources and, and the lives of their citizens, I mean, that's a radical concept that you can't really squeeze into a minute 30. It's practically impossible. And so I think that a lot of journalism just kind of falls back on on the conventional tropes that the mainstream audience is used to hearing or watching or consuming. And so now, that said, the advent of the podcast era, this current phase anyway, where it's much easier to make and distribute alternative viewpoints, it at least provides the opportunity for those who want to go deeper and those who maybe want to dedicate some time to an Indigenous first perspective, they can get a fuller picture by consuming as much media as possible. And part of that would be podcasts like Media Indigena. But do you feel that mainstream media, I mean, is it changing? Is it? Um, I just spoke to Rosanna Deerchild, who's on CBC's Unreserved. Yeah, that's right. There, there are sort of, I guess, nicks and crannies within mainstream media institutions in Canada that are being carved out for Indigenous voices, given that the audience still clearly wants a certain thing and is unfamiliar with certain terms or broadcasters are really unwilling to rock the boat in a certain sense. What would you like to see in terms of those nooks and crannies becoming deep fissures in existing institutions? 
Well, I mean, yeah, Unreserved is an excellent program, and, and Rosanna Deerchild is, is an excellent uh, host and, and journalist, and, and that, I think it's awesome and inspiring to see Unreserved occupy that space within the CBC lineup. That is one way to go about it. Another way, of course, is to integrate Indigenous perspectives in, into storytelling, but as I say, when they're radically different from what people are used to in the mainstream, you have to have backgrounders, you have to explain things, and then by the time you're done explaining something, you've run out of time. And I think in some ways it's just encouraging people to have a varied diet, if you will, of media content. And I think any step towards integrating more Indigenous people as professionals, whether that's Duncan McHugh who's uh, just an outstanding reporter and now host of Cross Country Checkup. I mean, these will give people the opportunity to speak back to possible stereotypes or lazy thinking about Indigenous peoples. But at the same time, you know, the Aboriginal People's Television Network, I think, in, in many respects, is where I'd like to see a lot more people go. I'd like to see people consume Aboriginal content made by Aboriginal people within an Aboriginal institution for an Aboriginal audience. How we get people to do that, I mean... I just encourage people to consume the content and learn and take it in as much as they can, because then it might cause them to reflect back differently upon mainstream coverage when they when they consume that. Thank you so much, Rick, for coming on the show. I think that is just something that we all need to reflect on, and especially settlers, for sure. Well, yeah, just to check us out, MediaIndigenous.com. And uh, we have 88 episodes or every week, and it's free, as you say, But if you have uh, $5 a month to help support the production of this Indigenous-made content, it would go a long way to getting us sustainable. For sure. Thanks so much. Take care. Hey, this is Unfit to Prince Julia, and you are listening to CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal and worldwide on CKUT.ca. have Wamish Hamilton from Discourse Media, which is an alternative media source that looks to go deep into issues in Canadian society, and especially important right now is their project Toward Reconciliation. Thank you so much, Wamish, for joining me. Thank you for having me on. So I was wondering first if you could tell our listeners about what Discourse Media is and how you guys are different from other media sources. Discourse Media is uh, an independent news outlet. It's three years old. And it does the kind of depth, long-form, deep-dive type of investigations that aren't so common anymore. Why I brought you on is because of one project in particular, which is Toward Reconciliation. And you've done a lot of pieces on what reconciliation looks like for different groups across Canada. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the reasons behind Discourse taking that project on and then your own approach to it and the journalism that you do. It's not so much a project uh, as it is uh, as much a beat 
And I know that's uh, not common parlance in the uh, media industry too much anymore. So it's, it's really a beat. It has its genesis in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, which were dropped in 2015. And at that time, in the ensuing months, the owner, Aaron Miller, and some of the others in discourse looked at the calls to action specifically aimed at media. And they asked themselves, how can we meet these calls to action? What can we do to, to do our part? And they established a reconciliation beat, if you will. Couched within it would be stories about Indigenous issues and reconciliation. It's space devoted specifically to reconciliation. And I think, except for uh, Reconcile This, which is a CBC program run by Angela Sterrett, it is the only other base in media that is devoted specifically to reconciliation, that's resourced specifically for reconciliation, and that has a dedicated reporter for reconciliation. So tell us about the types of stories that you've been telling. I've done a series of stories. Uh, the first investigation I did for Discourse was last year, and I did that series on what freedom of the press looks like in BC's new Treaty First Nations. And I chose BC's new Treaty First Nations because, for instance, the Nishkan Nation, which was the recipient of Canada's first modern-day treaty, it had adopted as part of its constitution the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which, as we know, contains within it the freedom of the press. And that was significant to me because, to my knowledge, there was no media outlet that, for instance, would go to First Nations meetings and cover them as they would, say, city council meetings or, or school board meetings or uh, legislature meetings, or coverage of the parliament, for instance. Now there was uh, freedom of the press, but as I was to find, access was, was another issue. But having said this, that was the first investigation that I did for Discourse. Presently, I'm looking at what reconciliation looks like in small Canadian towns. Some of your pieces, like, they're all different perspectives. Have you found any common thread? I mean, other than the fact that there really is no clear-cut definition for reconciliation, and that's something that people are trying to, to figure out together. Yeah, reconciliation. Uh, there is, for instance, the default definition, I call it, which is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's definition that it drew up. Having said this, I'll give you a for instance. I was speaking to Judith Sayers, who is the new president of the New Chanath Tribal Council on Vancouver Island and here in BC. And she was saying, yeah, there's the truth and reconciliation definition. Having said this, she's meeting with the 14 communities that she represents, and they're going to hash out what reconciliation means to them and what initiatives would support that. So by extension, reconciliation means different things to different people. It means different things to different groups. It means something different to treaty nations, for instance, as opposed to nations in B.C. who would be more land and resource concerned, if you will. So with this sort of amorphous definition, do you find that it's difficult to come up with something tangible when you're talking to people in municipal government, for example, or leaders in different Indigenous nations? Do you feel like there's a disconnect between you know them and federal government or between... Um, for example, like a municipality and then a nearby nation? Not necessarily, although having said this, as I was defined uh, in many communities, as one leader put it to me, in small communities, for instance, in small municipalities uh, in which there was a First Nation, the dynamic between the municipality and the First Nation was described to me as this. We live over here, they live over there, and that's just the way it is. They, they don't really know each other, and there's a bit of a divide. 
in some of these places. That's kind of what I've one of the things that I've found so far about reconciliation. And particularly with the small to medium-sized municipalities, the other thing I found was that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2015 aimed, I think, five to seven calls to action at either municipalities or they ensconced it in all levels of government. As we know, municipalities don't come in uniform sizes. They come in many, many different sizes, small to large. So, well, for instance... It's uh, easy for the city of Toronto or the city of Winnipeg or the city of Vancouver to declare themselves cities of reconciliation and devote years of reconciliation and initiatives to support that. It's not so easy, on the other hand, for small to medium-sized towns to be able to do this or to accomplish that. And there's no easy way of saying this. The other thing that I've found is uh, in a lot of these small to medium-sized places, there are deep racial divisions still between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Yeah, one of your pieces explicitly goes into the fact that, you know, in Toronto, if you create some kind of programming, it's not going to touch most people's lives. Whereas if you maybe change the name of a street or create some kind of initiative in a small town, it is felt much more keenly and, you know, people people care more. Have you found examples of smaller municipalities or of groups that are trying to take reconciliation from sort of a, a larger thing where, you know, we fund the CBC more or we introduce X or Y initiative and put it as something that is part of people's lives and is actually about bringing communities together, whether over, I don't know, in, in, in shared stories or shared activities or things like that? I think in many of the small to medium-sized places, there's a struggle with reconciliation, with initiating reconciliation. The lack of a uniform definition is part of it. I would argue that it's a small part of it. The greater part of this is the divide between the two peoples. Having said this, reconciliation is going to be the only way to bridge that divide. But how to do that? Well, it takes political will. I was speaking to a representative of the Northern Caucus of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. They're keen for reconciliation. They're curious about reconciliation. And they want to enact reconciliation. But this is something else that I've found. Uh, municipal officials and First Nations officials may want to do something about reconciliation, and they may embark on having joint council meetings and maybe cross-cultural training sessions between the staffs of their respective uh, municipality and First Nation. But it leads to what I call bureaucratic reconciliation. Something may be going on at the upper levels and the upper echelons between officials, but it's not bleeding down into the people where reconciliation is needed the most and where they'll find the most strife between people. So then, as a journalist, I guess what do you feel is the role of journalism in highlighting these difficulties? And do you feel like journalism has a role in the day-to-day and making people understand each other better? And below all of the municipal politics and initiatives, are you seeing examples of people trying to take this on in their communities, like neighbor-to-neighbor at all? I'll give you two examples if I have the time. One in a community that I covered as part of the uh, investigation that I'm doing now, there was a very well-meaning city councillor. He very well-meaningly wanted to change the name of a street in his city because, as he found, its namesake was a former racist MP and mayor who he didn't feel deserved the honour of having a street name bestowed upon him anymore. So when he tried to do this, news of his plan uh, leaked publicly in the weeks preceding the city council meeting where it was to be discussed. 
and townsfolk roiled online about the issue, disagreeing with it, so that by the time the council meeting came where it was discussed, the waters had been poisoned. Other councillors had essentially been accosted by townsfolks who didn't like the idea, and the initiative was voted against. At the same time, and out of the ashes of that, the city established a reconciliation committee, which is now going to help the, the reconciliation effort of the town, and it's made up of municipal, First Nations, and uh, community people that are going to steer this. So that's one instance where there was you know, a very difficult situation with respect to reconciliation, and it spoke to a lot of things. One, there's the capacity of small to medium-sized towns. You know, these folks are left to try to figure out what reconciliation is, and it's uh, difficult at the best of times to try to figure out what reconciliation is, what it means, how to support it. On the other hand, in another community that I studied, there was uh, two instances which were very positive, which were received positively by the community at large. One, a city councillor tried to trace the ownership of two talking sticks traditional uh, Indigenous talking sticks that were presented to the city in the 60s as a gift from a local lumber baron who'd also been a, in quotes, art collector. And this guy couldn't trace exactly where these talking sticks came from, their ownership, and whether they had been gifted to the lumber baron or the city properly. So with the support of his uh, councillors, he sought to trace the history of those things back. And the, the effort was received positively I didn't read or see or hear any concern, any complaints about it. No, that's just one well-meaning gesture. The same city had approached the two local First Nations, which are uh, in its uh, jurisdiction, and asked if they could fly their tribe's flags alongside a municipal flag at City Hall. Now, these are small gestures. They're just small, but they're well-meaning and they're representative of goodwill. There's both positive and negative examples and uh, that speaks to reconciliation itself. It's a, it's a difficult journey. It's going to be a difficult journey. The journey has just embarked. You know, the, the first ripples of reconciliation are emanating in the pool that it has to travel across. And there's a lot of traveling yet to do. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're most welcome. Thank you. And I hope that everybody listening goes to discoursemedia.org and checks out Toward Reconciliation, which is, as Wamisha said, one of the only publications that does have this beat. So thank you so much for speaking with us. If I may last say, yeah, uh, check out the other beats Reconciliation has because there's crossovers. The other beats cover Indigenous issues as well. Yeah, like your, um, your Child welfare, pi- pipelines as well. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So that was Wamish Hamilton, and now we are going into some different programming. On Sunday, just over one year after the election of Donald Trump, and just weeks after the passing of Bill 62, thousands of Montrealers took to the streets to protest hate and racism. So I'm going to switch gears from the Indigenous coverage now and talk to a variety of folks at the Manifon Sunday just to see who showed up and why. We're here today to walk against demonstrate against hate and racism. Uh, we're not we're not uh, witness to uh, singular or unique isolated events of racism, but rather we are witness to a deep-seated racism that is crystallizing itself 
today, uh, whether it's the Charter of Values, whether it's the election of Donald Trump, whether it's the rise of the far-right parties uh, in France and Europe, and the recent adoption of law of Bill 62, um, are just demonstrations of a continuity of racism here in Quebec, and we're here to walk together, largely in large numbers, to denounce clearly and openly hate and racism, and to make racists afraid again. So do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, um, my name is Donna, I go by she, and um, yeah, just living in the city doing my thing. I'm a massive therapist, but I also garden in the city and have a bunch of gardening initiatives in the city. And so, what brought you out here today? Um, it's, for me, it's all about love and unity, you know? I know the manif is called contre la haine, racism, but it's the same thing. And um, I think we're in a really tough time of segregation and isolation. And uh, this is a time for us to all come together and uh, cross all different backgrounds and ethnicities to fight for a better world for the future generations, for everyone, yeah. Thanks so much. So what's your name? Mira. So, Mila, why did you come here today? Why did I come here? Well, it's about everything that's happening everywhere in the world, and especially in Canada, that we don't really talk about. I'm, I'm a militant for Palestine, but I'm also like uh, all about like all these movements that we're fighting for today, Black Lives Matter, for trans rights, LGBT rights, etc. So it's just to express my voice and try to to make people aware that we need to change something. And so do you feel like these issues are being represented in Quebec and Montreal society right now? Well, I see a lot of youth actually caring about this, so that's a relief. But I also have like people around me who don't really give, like you don't care about this about this because it doesn't concern them. So I think this is a lot of what's going on. Like I, there, there's both sides, you know, uh, that are like I feel like it's mostly people who are inactive that are hindering us from you know, making a change. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sabine Friesinger, uh, I'm a co-president of Alternatives and I'm here today uh, to say no to racism, uh, that uh, we won't allow the governments or the, um, the, the powerful, the rich, we won't allow them to divide us. We are united against racism uh, today. and um, and. I'm very happy to see this large turnout. It's just amazing, the wide uh, diversity and uh, all the different colors and so on. It's beautiful. It shows that Quebec is a place where um, it's really social movements and civil society that get to dictate uh, in the streets the mood of, uh, of the city, basically. Yeah, and we saw it also with the uh, elections, the municipal elections, Montreal is expressing itself um, and saying that, you know, no more racism in Quebec. No more. Uh, my name is Vincent Musso. I'm the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the, um, sorry, I'm the Vice President Internal of the Social Work Student Association. Also a U1 Social Work Student. Uh, at which school? At McGill. And uh, organized, uh, organized our presence in the, uh, in the rally here. 
Okay, uh, great. Thanks so much. So why are you guys here today? Uh, well, we think it's important that we challenge, uh, of course, hatred and racism for obvious reasons. Uh, they go against, uh, it goes against uh, the realities of our profession, but also we think it's really important that we call this out because legislation that is uh, fueled by racism and Islamophobia, like Bill 62, is going to have a direct impact on the students that are practicing our profession right now, but also on the populations that we will or will not be able to serve in the future. And we think it's unacceptable that our profession is being used in order to enable this type of violence against indigenous against uh, against racialized people uh, disproportionately racialized women thank you so much um, if you had I guess one message in light of the current Quebec politics um, for our political leaders what would that be what do you think that movements like this uh, signal even while we might not have a majority of the of the people uh, in uh, in Quebec supporting uh, supporting our movement we are gonna fight to the nail against racism and we're gonna challenge this and we eventually will win Thank you so much. No Hi, so my name's Kristen. I'm with AVEC, which is the Association for the Voice of Education in Quebec, and I'm the Mobilization Coordinator. Thanks so much. Uh, so, I guess, what is your group doing at this event? Uh, how does it relate to the mission statement of your organization? Yeah, so AVEC is basically a, an association that's representing students across Quebec, and of course we have a lot of racialized students as well, so it's especially important for us to be here today, you know, as some of us racialized students ourselves, and also supporting um, for those who are not. Um, our students across the province and also just to stand in solidarity with racialized people in Quebec uh, all over the world who are trying to come to Quebec as well. Uh, we think it's really important to, to be able to support the people that are, are marginalized often in society and so this is one of the reasons that we're here today. Thank you. Um, so can you describe the reactions from people who are part of AVEC, uh, different student organizations with to, to things like um, Bill 62, uh, the current uh, inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women, and just issues like that, both on the provincial and the national level. Yeah, so that has a lot of position just against like racism and Islamophobia in general, um, kind of those more specific uh, values that we have. But more recently, uh, in our last Congress, we actually adopted a position specifically against Bill 62. It was kind of happened right after uh, it was it was brought forward. Um, and so he kind of made a, a full statement and took a, a strong position against Bill 62 in solidarity with all of our Muslim friends, with a lot of students across the province. Uh, you know, even just being able to, to demonstrate freely and the ability to have your face covered um, and use public services is really important. And, you know, Bill 62 is something that's restricting access to people who need those services. Uh, so we thought it was really unjust and we we're kind of taking a strong position against that. Um, we have a lot of Indigenous uh, solidarity that we have as well in our, in our values. Um, so it's really important to remember, you know, whose land we're on right now and the, the ongoing impacts of colonization right now. You know, sometimes people talk about colonization as if it's in the past, but we're really feeling the effects now. And so Avec really wants to kind of stand with people who, who are feeling the effects of colonization, um, especially in education and like in the, in, the, in, the, in the systems that we have in the educational institutions we have, you know, at our universities. Um, so that's something that we can do as a provincial association as well. And so, Aside from events like this, what would you say are good ways for people who are interested in combating racism and who are against things like Bill 62 to take a stand and to get involved? Hmm. So, I mean, when it comes to policy, uh, it's pretty clear that you can get involved by contacting your representatives. So, 
for the case of Bill 62, for example, might be the Ministry of Justice who you'd want to contact or also uh, your local representative. So depending on, you know, what their stance might be, some are uh, in favor and some are against. So either congratulating and thanking them or like pushing them to take a stance against Bill 62. And I think that's always a really important thing is just the kind of the representation part and using your voice as a constituent in Quebec. Um, other than that, I think, you know, just challenging racism in, when it happens in our places of work and our places of learning, um, when it happens, you know, right in front of you or kind of at the more institutional level as well. So, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of racist things which are more instituted into policies, for example, or just lack of support for students who need it most in our universities. So that's one place where we can kind of intervene, um, but also at the more direct interpersonal level. So, you know, if you see any harassment happening or, you know, if you see racialized people in a meeting being talked over, for example, you can really use your voice to, to back up these people and kind of lift up their voices. So it's kind of like those individual actions which we can take and that can make a real difference in people's lives um, while we also look at the larger institutional problems and try to fight, you know, the policies and the, the larger systemic racism some issues that we face today. Okay, so how did you feel about the turnout today and just the how today's demonstration against racism went? I think it was really positive to see so many people out and you know the, the organizers really did a lot of work to make sure a lot of groups joined on and signed on. I think there's over 150 last time I checked and you know just hundreds of groups across the province coming together to say no to hate, no to racism and you know yes to refugees and immigrants and racialized people and supporting them, saying that black lives matter, saying that indigenous lives matter, you know all of these issues that sometimes are not spoken about as much or are only spoken about by a very small group of people. Um, we saw today how people were coming together to be in solidarity with each other you know um, yeah basically calling for for support for all of the people that are needing it especially when you talk about racism and so it was really positive to see that and I'm really glad that we we're able to be here as an association because you know we're representing our students and this is an issue that impacts a lot of our students thank you so much Thanks. So next on the show, we have a little bit of audio from Wednesday, November 8th's panel on opposing racial profiling and police violence. This is Desmond Cole speaking now. What I want to talk about today is this idea of the definition of policing. What is it? What is it actually? Um, what is it in real life? What is it in the public consciousness, which I think is far more important? And why are the police associations right now so terrified that the notion of the definition of their jobs is up for discussion right now? What I have seen in what's been happening in Toronto recently where we are pushing back against a 10-year police and schools program and finally got it suspended within the Toronto District School Board, suspended pending review, that is, it's not gone. But what we're seeing actually is that it's principals and teachers, not just the police who are driving this conversation to have police in schools. Because when the principals have that black student that they think is misbehaving, troublesome, too much of a, of a burden on, on the staff team, well, I can just go down the hall and talk to Officer Smith. And Officer Smith's gonna take care of you now. Forget that what you're doing has nothing to do with the law and Officer Smith. He's the authority figure in the school now. He supersedes everybody. Whether it's the school system, 
whether it's cardio, whether it's immigration detention, whether it's uh, the child welfare system, I'm hopefully going to be doing a show in the next week or two just speaking with women in Toronto who have had their children apprehended, the rates of disproportion in terms of black and indigenous women. And I have to say, when, we, when Robin says like we have to think about what violence really means, you would think, again, that what this is about is black parents who are being told, you're doing something wrong, we're taking your children. Indigenous parents who are being told that. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's an issue of domestic assault where a partner beats on their, 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 their partner and the police are called in. And then the police take the children and the state takes the children away from the mom after she was assaulted. And mom is spending two, three, and five years fighting the system to get the kids back. And the only thing that happened to bring the state into the picture in the first place was that she was attacked. It's so insidious, it's not, it's, 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 it goes so deep beyond like, the evil intentions of an, of an individual or of even the child welfare system, the education system. There's so many factors that are conspiring together here. Um, and so I start to think because of the work of people like Sandy Hudson of Black Lives Matter in Toronto, when Sandy really tries to focus conversations about care and um, what it means for us as black people to receive care rather than to receive policing. I started to think about what is the definition of a police officer? And what happens when we start to challenge that definition? Okay? In Toronto, because the police budget is the largest single budget in the city, what business in this country would spend a tenth of what it spends on so-called security? These are the actual ways that we think we're supposed to be spending precious resources, and it has so much to do with this fear that's constantly being commented about black people. Um, but because the police are finally getting some pressure in Toronto, they're saying, okay, we'll trim our budget, we'll find ways. When we try to turn something like policing from the abusive institution that it is now to an institution that could actually care for people, but particularly black people, and we put ourselves as black people and our safety first, the white settler colonial state actually gets scared. When we talk about our protection and safety, other people get scared. When we say police shouldn't have guns because we are the ones 10 times to one who are gonna get killed, white people actually get scared. So I think that when we talk about what policing is, we're getting to the root of how policing in its most violent forms, in its most insidious forms, is really pointing at black people without ever having to say so. And that like we have to be we have to be making sure that we're like pointing that out at all times. I'm Naomi Klein, author of The Shock Doctrine. You're listening to CKUT. Keep listening. Sometimes I felt in my first year that I learned more outside of the classroom than in class because of events like this. Uh, which is why I got involved in QPIRG as a volunteer. Um, I'm Kira. I'm the Campus Outreach Coordinator at QPIRG. So Culture Shock is uh, an event series on anti-racism, migrant justice, and Indigenous solidarity. Um, it's been happening for over 10 years now. Um, and the idea is basically to create a space where people can have open conversations about 
race in Montreal and in Canada um, and the experience of being a racialized student on campus. Um, so this year, as always, we had our Anti-Racism 101. We're having some events focused specifically on Islamophobia in Montreal because that's a very relevant topic in Quebec right now. Um, we also have an event on uh, identifying and resisting the far right on your campus. Uh, we had a workshop with Desmond Cole um, about how to critically engage with, with the news. We also had um, a, a panel on uh, border violence, uh, focusing specifically on, on immigration laws and border violence in Palestine and Mexico. Um, Kuperg's mandate is to be an anti-oppression organization, um, and so as, as a group we we oppose all forms of oppression on any basis. Uh, Culture Shock specifically is focused on things like racism and xenophobia and Islamophobia that we see on our campus and in Montreal in general. Um, and so the purpose of Culture Shock is to really start getting students and community members to start like engaging in dialogue and start talking about issues that we're seeing. Yeah, and so we're really just trying to create a space where, um, where people can have open conversations, where people can learn and ask questions um, and start to learn about like other people that are experiencing similar things, um, talk about concrete actions that can be taken, um, really just start to understand each other and build a more cohesive community as a campus. All right, so that was Kira Shepard. Thank you to all my listeners and to everyone who came on the show this week. My name is Julia Bijal, and this has been CKUT's Unfit to Print.